Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And welcome to our 16th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes, or they happened a really long time ago, or there's just not enough information for a full episode. Essentially, we have a giant list of failures we want to tell you about, but we haven't been able to dig up enough information to talk about them for a full 45 minutes, even with side tangents. <laughs> it's a really long list, and we keep adding to it with all of your fantastic recommendations. Please keep sending those over. We love to hear them. Even if they don't make it to an episode, we still like reading about them. For sure. Usually I get sent down a whole rabbit hole of of digging up information and I just it's I love it. It's it's so much fun. So please keep sending those through. And then once Nicole gets down the rabbit hole, more things get added to the list. It's a gift that yes. keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah, usually so uh a few weeks ago we did an episode on an amusement park ride failure. And then a listener sent in some recommendations for other amusement park ride failures. And then I started talking to people about work, about all these amusement park ride failures. And then they recommended some documentaries and some other ones that I hadn't heard of. And now we could do a whole series on amusement parks. Like a whole series for sure. Easily. There's so many. The list just keeps growing and growing from one user recommendation. Yes. So this week's mini failure is about the Seattle Kingdom. The Seattle Kingdom was located in Seattle, Washington and opened on March 27, 1976 and closed on January 9, 2000. And it was demolished by an implosion on March 26, 2000, which I think is the best way to take down a building. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I do like watching those videos. Of course, with everyone, you know, it's when everyone's evacuated, it's a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, there shouldn't be people when you when you implode a building. Yeah, for for obvious reasons. The kingdom cost sixty seven million dollars to build, which in twenty twenty money is three hundred and five million dollars. Had two main tenants; they were the Seattle Mariners of Major League Baseball and the Seattle Seahawks. Although it did host Seattle Sounders games. Um, of MLS and the Seattle Supersonics of the NBA. Uh, MLS is Major League Soccer. So, Brian, I do want to touch on this for a bit because it's nowadays it's super rare to see a stadium house two tenants, almost always one tenant per. Um, one exception to that would be the stadium in New Jersey where the New York jets and giants play but they're both football teams i also know there's candlestick field in san francisco which is now closed i guess but it used to house the football and the baseball team but it is really rare to have baseball and football in the same stadium you don't see that yeah and and so there are a couple of multi-sport venues that are still in existence so the oakland coliseum hosted the A's and the Oakland Raiders. The Raiders moved to Las Vegas to become the Las Vegas Raiders. But that was another stadium that housed football and, and baseball in it. Um, obviously, it's a little bit easier with venues that host hockey and basketball here in Toronto or in Toronto here in Canada. Um, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Raptors play in the same venue. Obviously, Madison Square Garden has New York Knicks and 
New York Rangers playing in them. But yeah, for for a venue to host, uh, you know, quite different sports, um, you know, with baseball and football and basketball and, and soccer, um, the sight lines and the field requirements are obviously quite different between all these different sports. And to have a venue that can accommodate all four of those, it, it does present significant design challenges for how the stadium is built and, you know, the, the HVAC that's required for it and the sight line. So I, I do think it is really interesting that this this venue did host four different sports. Yeah, well, I mean, the 70s were a much different time. Indeed, they were. I I wasn't actually alive during the 70s. Despite what he tells you on other episodes. He's not I'm that not old. quite that old. We should we should cut that part out so people <laughs> think I'm still old. <laughs> so the kingdom for basketball could host 40,000 people. For baseball, there were 59,000 people that could sit there. And for football, there were 66,000 people. So it could accommodate a, a quite a vast range of spectators, depending on the sport. And it was it was 200 meters wide within its inside walls. So this is a fairly large enclosed venue in Seattle, in, in downtown Seattle, in what is now where the Seahawks play of, of, of the NFL. And I do want to say that's pretty interesting. So I just did look up to confirm those capacity numbers, but the basketball court field place is so much smaller than football. So it's weird that it that the capacity was so much less with a with a basketball game than with a football game because the football field is is quite large. Yeah, that that is quite interesting. And do you know if they if they roped off or tarped off some of the you know the upper levels for basketball just for visibility purposes or you know how how something like that works? Like I, I know when they've done kind of outdoor NHL games in in football stadiums or baseball stadiums, the sight lines from some of these uh, seats are are actually quite terrible just because the the hockey arena is is so far in the middle of the field and there's you know quite a long walk to get to the dressing rooms um you know kind of where the dugout locations would be and i i had the opportunity to go go to an outdoor nhl game and it it wasn't it was very fun but it it wasn't the greatest visibility yeah i i don't know it doesn't i mean they just don't go into that level of detail in the the website i was just looking on I think Ticketmaster now, or at least some of the ticket sales sites, do give you a visual of the view from your seat, or at least the view from your section, so you kind of have an idea of what you're signing up for. And then sometimes I think they also add comments like speaker blocks partial view or like something like that if the seats are highly discounted. But it, yeah, it doesn't really give you too, too much detail. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that, and I, I've actually bought tickets for um, a baseball game that was blocked mostly by a pillar at Wrigley Field, but uh, it was an afternoon game, so I just moved a couple seats over, and it worked out incredibly well. <laughs> yeah. One interesting thing about the Kingdom was that the owner took out bonds to build and, and repair the Kingdom, and that's not uncommon, but the interesting thing about this is that they were paid off in 2015. So the owner was still paying off these bonds 15 years after the stadium was demolished, which is really unfortunate and a poor financial decision, I will say. And and also, you know, that's not even uncommon. We talked about the big O in an earlier episode. I believe it was episode 32. And they had the same thing where they were still paying off the 
they it took them i think 30 years 30 plus years to pay off the stadium now the big o is still around they haven't torn it down although they're not really using it for anything at the moment um that one's in montreal but it that's really unfortunate so it was torn down for a reason and that reason was the roof the roof was problematic from the beginning due to a design flaw so due to budget limitations, the roof had these acoustic tiles in them, and they served two purposes. So first, they were forms for the concrete above that made the roof, and they also acted as acoustic tiles to help noise transfer within the stadium. This sounds like they did not make a good decision right here. It, it seems like a, like a halfway problem-solving method where instead of solving both problems, it solves neither of the problems. Correct. So the tiles, these acoustic tiles were held in place by six clips on their edges. And over time, the clips weakened as moisture from the insulation accumulated into the tiles due to a lack of water vapor management. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Seattle, it's a coastal city. It's located right on the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty humid there. They get a lot of rain and they just didn't have the ability to control it properly with the vapor barrier and the drainage that they had on the roof. And so these metal clips weakened and corroded over time. And leaks started, this is so bad that leaks started three months before the stadium opened. So the stadium is not even complete yet and they already have a problem. Any attempts they did make to stop the leaks either made it worse or they didn't help. And in 1993, they tried to strip off the outer roof coating to replace it with a special coating, but even sandblasting couldn't strip the old coating off completely. Oh man, so they have a problem and they can't even remove the cause of the problem. This is, this is not good. This is not a good way to fix this problem. No. They also tried power washing, which is kind of weird because you'd think if sandblasting didn't work, why would power washing? And to make matters worse, the water seepage during power washing that went through the roof was so extensive. And on July 19th of 1994, four 12-kilogram segments of waterlogged acoustic panels fell onto a seating area. So the acoustic panels fell onto the field while the Mariners, the Major League Baseball team, were on the field preparing for a game and the doors were supposed to open in 30 minutes. Luckily, the stadium was closed and the game was rescheduled. As far as timing goes, I think this is pretty ideal timing. There's no fans in the in the stadium at this point. So there's players on the field. There's coaching staff. There's operational people that run and operate the facility. So there's not as many people in here as what there would be for a Mariners game. The Mariners during this time period, I believe, were pretty bad. So they're probably weren't going to be that many people that came to the game, but there's certainly less people when this happens than what there would have been during a Major League Baseball game. Yeah, let me just say, if I'm sitting there watching a baseball game and part of the roof collapses, I am not going to be a happy camper. The players refused to play out that game and the remainder of the season in nearby Tacoma or Vancouver, and they had to play the rest of the season on the road. The baseball strike of 1994, it cut that season short, so that was probably a good thing. The Kingdom reopened on November the 4th, 1994, with roof repairs that cost 51 million US dollars, and unfortunately, two construction workers died in a crane accident on August 17th during the roof repairs. 
After significant back and forth from team owners and municipal lenders to either repair or replace the stadium, the kingdom was eventually demolished on March 26, 2000 at 8.30 in the morning. This was one day short of 24 years since the dome opened, so not very long at all for a building or you know, certainly for a professional sports arena. This also made the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest building by volume to be imploded. With that in mind, the Seahawks' new stadium, Lumen Field, opened on July 20th, 2002, and the Mariners relocated to T-Mobile Park. So there you have it, the failure of the Seattle Kingdom, a venue that had design issues from the start that didn't improve over the lifespan of the venue. Poor design, leaks, and some really bad baseball and basketball teams are the legacy that remains for the kingdom. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. I also recently sent out a link to an RSS feed that's direct from our Patreon page. So if you sign up for that, you should be able to get these bonus episodes in your regular feed, which is pretty exciting. If you have trouble with that, just message us in the Patreon app and I will help you sort that out. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.